What's up, plant people? Today is Tuesday, July the 21st, 2020, and this is another episode of the Plantropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and passions of some really cool plant people. This is Vikram Baliga, your host, back for another episode. If I sound sleepy, it's because I submitted my dissertation this past Sunday and will be defending my dissertation uh, a week from tomorrow on the 29th. And so if you are the type of person that does such things, any prayers or good vibes or happy thoughts about 1 p.m. Central Standard Time in the U.S. of A uh, on on Wednesday the 29th would be so much appreciated. I might, on the next episode, get to introduce myself as Dr. Vikram Baliga, a thing that I'll do exactly once. But yeah, so I'm tired. I haven't slept in a while. Uh, And if I sound sleepy today, it's also because I have not had enough coffee today which is a great segue into today's episode. We'll be talking a lot about coffee as well as GMOs, science, plant breeding, and all kinds of other great stuff. Before we do that, a couple things. So first, I had said that I was doing a giveaway for the person that came up with the best story for the one-star rating I got on iTunes without a review. And the only person that entered, so he definitely wins, is my buddy Paul Chomo from the Varmint's podcast, which is just a wonderfully great show that you should be listening to for sure. Go check out Varmint's podcast on anywhere that you can get a podcast. And uh, I know you're really going to love it because animals are great and Paul and Donna are great and you should be listening. But he says that I got a one-star rating from a disgruntled lumberjack who did not like how favorably we were talking about trees. And I think that's about as reasonable as anything. So Paul, you've got some swag coming your way sometime soon. Um, also, our two partners are Pecan Ridge and Local LBK, both Lubbock-based businesses. Uh, if you go to PecanRidge.com, you can order all kinds of great pecan-themed merchandise, local cool stuff by a bunch of great local businesses. You can get your pecan shelled. You can get little pecan pies, all things pecans all the time. PecanRidge.com. Use the promo code PLANTPEOPLE at checkout for 10% off your order. Also, go check out LocalLBK.com. If you're a Lubbock kind of human, that is the very best way to get great discounts on all kinds of community businesses and organizations, and you will really be helping out our community by joining for just $5 a month, uh, you'll get a online login through an app. You can get a card and all kinds of businesses around town honor it. So it's great. You need to be a part of local OBK. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in today's episode. So I sat down uh, a little while ago. It was one of my first in-person interviews that I had done in, in quite some time, actually, because of uh, pandemic times and all that. But I interviewed Dr. Carrie Mayfield, who is by training and uh, past profession, a plant breeder who's worked in corn and sorghum and a v- bunch of other things, uh, who now is a rock star coffee roaster. His his work is great. Uh, he brought me a couple of bags of coffees when he came in. He owns Tierras, Tierras I have to learn to roll my R's, Tierras Planus. Uh, coffee roasters, which means Flatlands Coffee. And uh, I wanted to bring him on because I love coffee, clearly. If you've never met me or know anything about me, you know how much I love coffee. Uh, but also, I wanted to talk about coffee from a an, an environmental standpoint and 
you've probably read that coffee is going away because of climate change, and we address that, and we talk about traditional plant breeding and some of the controversy surrounding GMOs and the philosophy of science. And this is just a wonderful, fun episode, chock full of great conversation and great science content that I know you're going to love. So buckle up, tie your shoes, put on your favorite hat, uh, grab a warm or cold cup of delicious coffee and get ready for episode 22 of the Planthropology podcast with Dr. Carrie Mayfield. All right, well we are live and I'm here with uh Carrie Mayfield, um the owner of Tierras Okay, I'm going to say this wrong. Tierras Planas? You got part of it right. Okay. You just need to roll the R, so Tierras Planas. Okay, yeah, I'm not good at that. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a, a plant breeder, a PhD, a coffee roaster, all kinds of other stuff. So thanks for being in with me. Yeah, thanks, Vic, for having me. Um, it's honored to be here with you. Um, it's been an interesting career that I've had over the past 20, 26, 27 years or so since I started working in different fields, uh, mainly plant breeding. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so we kind of we kind of got connected, I guess, through social media. Actually, I think through Dylan. Um Maybe Dylan. Maybe uh, Dylan actually goes back further than that. Okay. So you remember at Calvary Baptist Church or attended Calvary Baptist Church yeah. a long time ago? Yeah. And I think that was right about the time we moved up here in 2010. Okay. And so we do know some of the same people from there. Okay. Um, and so I remember a couple of years ago seeing you pop up on something and going, who is that? And my wife going, you don't remember them? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. At the time I was gone a lot. I'm still finishing up my PhD at that point. And then having a full-time job in the commercial sector required a lot of hours out and about. And so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Gosh, I didn't make that connection, but yeah, that's, yeah. man, that's been a while. Yeah. So the really fun part about that is, um, is knowing Ellen Peffley, Ellen Harp. Yeah. yeah. So she was a professor of mine when I was an undergraduate at Texas Tech in 1994, somewhere around there. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Peffley, I think was retiring Gosh, probably right as I was starting my master's. Oh, really? We may have, we crossed paths a little bit, but okay. I mean, I know her, but right. uh, really, really interesting, uh, very knowledgeable horticulturist. Oh, she is. She's a blast to talk to anytime about lots of different things. Dr. Peffley is one of those people that like, one, you know where you stand with her a hundred percent. And yes. I appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and two, like, you know, and like she was, always, she's always been very nice to me, but in the back of my head, I'm always like, I don't really want to make her mad. No, you know, I knew that from the first time I entered in her class in that very first class, I remember that day. I remember her introduction and there's only been a couple of professors that I remember that, um, both of them. Realistically, both of them here, yeah. um, one in biology and one in hers, for sure, <laughs> just because of the presence that they put of, I'm, yes, this this is me. Yeah. And and it's been great knowing Ellen for as long as I have. Yeah. And in the different capacities that I have now. For sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I guess let's let's back up and, and tell me a little bit about your, uh, you know, we, we were discussing before we started recording just about all the, the various and... Yeah. Wide range of things you've done. So tell me a little bit about like your background. How'd you get into uh, studying plants and, and all of that? Uh, so I grew up in a in a small town in South Texas. Um, my grand I'm generation number two removed from the farm. Okay. So my which meant my grandfather was still farming. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And so he was a small landholder, um, less than 200 acres, rotated cotton, corn, and sorghum. And to me, sorghum was the most beautiful crop in the world. When it hit that peak, about peak color two weeks or so before harvest, it was just amazing. So up to that point, okay, I want to do this. I don't know what I want to do. I came to Texas Tech as an undergraduate. I want to be a teacher. Let's do that. I hit my first education class and said, no way. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> About that same time, I met the station manager um, and breeder, assistant breeder for Cargill Hybrid Seeds that had a station in Portland, Texas, which was not too far from the house. Okay. So I'm traveling home wearing a College of Agricultural and Life Sciences t-shirt for traveling home for Christmas wearing that t-shirt and talk, strike a conversation with them, have a summer job that next summer. This is the most amazing thing ever. I was a grunt. I was a pollinator. That's all I did. And so, but it was, it was new. It was interesting. I, it opened up a window to me. And so then I came back for the, into the fall semester and said, yeah, this education thing isn't going to work and change my degree over to agronomy. Okay. And ended up being that my, uh, my boss, the breeder at the time, his, roommate when he was in college was my academic advisor. Okay. <laughs> so close the circle again yeah, of, yeah. of how close things are. <clears throat> and so I worked through through college, um, my time at Texas Tech working for Cargill up in um, up in Plainview and ended up working through sorghum and through corn um, breeding small um, small appointment with corn breeding there. Um, but the cool thing about the seed industry is every eight to twelve years there's a flip. Yeah. And that flip started in about 2000 and we saw it happening in 99. My wife was working for Asgro at the time in, in Plainview and, and we saw it happening there too um, with the acquisition of another seed company and loss of her job. And so we left and we moved down to, to Brenham okay. um, and we're down there and I was looking for a job. She had a job and that's what moved us down there. And um, so I was just looking for a job. And so I was like, oh, you know what? This is greenhouse down there. It's pretty cool. Um, went and said, hey, I'm looking for a job. I know nothing <laughs> but how to grow plants in a field because that's what I've been doing. Yeah. And so they looked at me and said, oh, my gosh. But then I realized that about oh, 15 weeks into a 52-week cycle in a greenhouse, all it does is replicate itself Every week to two weeks. Yep. And that replication drove me nuts. <laughs> <clears throat> and so the really cool thing is we were a wholesale grower for poinsettias. So poinsettias start in April, um, depending on how you're growing them. Yeah. And we were a um, cutting and a pre-finished grower for the genetics company. So there's two or three genetics companies for poinsettias in the U.S. Okay. And so I'm sitting there looking at all these different things. So when the rose-styled um, bracts came out, in the early 2000s. I'm looking at that. I'm looking at some of the marbled things. And I knew I wasn't in the right place when I went. What happens when I cross those two together? What does the F2 population look like then? And knowing they couldn't do it, they didn't own the um, IP on oh, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I knew not to even think about doing it, but my mind went there. And so I ended up at Texas A&M working in the corn breeding and genetics program for almost 10 years. And, you know, it was a great time being a Red Raider going into Aggie land. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I know that experience. I, yeah. I worked with I worked with some of the most amazing researchers that I've known that have been at A&M for, oh, 
35 years at that point, just yeah. giving me heck. And I remember just having enough of it one day. I said, I guess it takes a Red Raider to replace a lifelong Aggie. Oh, and, <laughs> oh that's funny. <laughs> it, it, it was, and, and it stopped. They yeah. didn't say anything else. Every now and then I get a little rib poke. Yeah, they'll bust your chops a little but, bit. But, but after that, it kind of just slowed down, slowed down. And so I was able to really work into a nice little career there, work through most of two graduate degrees. Um, asterisk, if you're ever looking for graduate school, make sure you're looking at research programs. Yeah. Research programs have funding for lots of things. Yeah. And make sure you can negotiate in what the funding actually funds. Uh, so it's there. Yeah. Um, and you can get through working full time through grad school. Do I recommend that after doing it? I'm going to ask your opinion on that because you're, uh, you're I'm doing it now. You're yeah, not so much. Yeah. You're, <laughs> that's what that's what my recommendation is, too. I was told I was advised by a by a breeder, by a recruiter within Monsanto when I started my Ph.D. program. Yeah. Quit your job. Quit your job, go to school full time, yeah, and get through it. You know, and and that's actually, you know, if if you if that's a if you're out there thinking about grad school mm-hmm. and that's an option for you, if you have a, a someone that can help support you, whatever, yes. do that. Yeah, because I'm, you know, I'll I'll graduate in December. I'll defend at the end of the summer, graduate in December, but that'll be like right at six years. Yep, uh, and. Which is maybe across the board not uncommon, but that's a long time. It is. So 2001 is when I started with Texas AgriLife Research. 2002 is when I started my master's. Okay. 2006 is when I started my PhD. 2011, I'd already moved up here in 2010. So I was into a corporate job trying to finish writing and then make scheduled time to defend and so, fortunately, that company was dead set on, you have to finish. We're not going to let you not finish. That's cool. And so, I had that support coming into it. So, um, but would things have been different had I just dropped my job, gone to school full time? Um, yeah, they would have. It would have yeah. been a lot different. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't have the same perspective on things. And so that's such a good point. And, you know, I think about that a lot, like mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so when I started my PhD, I was um, about a year into a job with extension. I was a county agent mm-hmm. here in Lubbock for four years and horticulture agent. And like, it was one of those things I finished my, my master's in 2012. And if you had asked me then if I was going to go do a PhD, I would have laughed. I, I did laugh in yeah. people's faces. I was like, not only no, but heck no, you know, yeah. like, and then you kind of forget after a while. And so I was approached by my advisor. Now we had worked professionally together a little bit okay. uh, as a, you know, me as an extension agent, we'd done a um, field day or something together. Right. And he approaches me and says, Hey, we've got this, this program I'm starting and we think you'd be a good fit for it since you study water and conservation. And I was like, yeah, I could do a PhD. Oh man, <laughs> it's been good. I'm, I will be happy to have it. Yes. And that's the thing. And it becomes a ticket. It opens yeah. doors and it gives you a, another accomplishment that you have. And it also gives you a different way to think about things because of all the different things you have to think about going into it. Yeah. When you come out and you finish your, to me, it was a really a different way just looking at life in general, a different set of questions that I ask all the time. And so would I go back and if I had to do it over again, would I not do it? No. Would I do it different? Maybe, but 
then again, the outcome that I've had is great. Yeah. I mean, I ended up with um, moving back to Lubbock. So grew up in South Texas, came to Lubbock in the mid early mid nineties for undergraduate, moved down to South Texas or South Central Texas for a few years, learned that my wife can't handle the humidity. Oh man. She's a, she's a <laughs> desert girl. Yeah. And uh, we met here and then we moved to South Central Texas and she went, what in the world just happened to me? And, yeah. um, and then moved back out here. Um, great people that we've been able to meet everywhere we've been um, and lifelong friendships everywhere that we've for been. Sure. And so then on top of that, they're moving into the corporate job with the mega company. Right. And so that was a different culture. And then moving into more of a venture capital company, completely different culture. Yeah. And then really got to see some things on how not to run a company mm -hmm. and what sure. happens when you run it that way um, and not to do. And so then whenever we started when the company started being in trouble, we started seeing signs as associate director, my budget reports quit coming in. Oh yeah. That's yeah. not good. And so then it's, well, how much money? I don't know how much money we have. We'll have, <laughs> go, go to my boss and say, Hey, how much are you? Cause I don't know. I was like, well, crap, who knows what, and then it's just keep going forward. And it's like, oh, we can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah. So then the start of the coffee, I mean, I traveled, I've traveled all over the world, um, had coffee, phenomenal coffee everywhere. And what seemed like the worst coffee in the world was at my home office. Huh? I mean, just terrible yeah. coffee, just terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> well, so that, you know what, just listening to you talk is interesting. We've had a lot of, I think, similar life experiences. I grew up here in Lubbock. Um, and you know, at 18, I was like, I want to get away for school, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. So I, I went and did my undergrad at A&M. Okay. Um, I've got, so my, I've actually have a bachelor of arts in horticulture. I studied landscape design. Okay. And then moved home, did my master's here, you know, and so we've kind of lived in similar places that in we the have. world studied yeah. and, you know, but like you say, I've just met some of the best people in mm -hmm. both places. Yeah. Right. And the cultures are very different between A&M and Texas tech. But I think, like, none of that's bad. Like, I think it's different in or in, in good ways. It is, 100%. There are such good people everywhere, but it gives you being able to move around and see everybody in their home and their cultures. And that's what the international travel did for me. I met so many amazing people all around the world, whether it was China, India, South Africa, South America, through the Caribbean, Mexico, that... Everybody has a different culture. Everybody has a different take on things. And you learn to appreciate what you have. Then you learn to appreciate what they have. And then you sometimes you go, well, do we really need what we have yeah. at some level? Because, hey, um, we have they have half that. Yeah. Or they use something completely different in a different area. Yeah. Well, and so so one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on uh, is because I'm, I'm a coffee fan. Mm -hmm. fanatic, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I drink a lot of coffee. Um, and in recent years I've gotten away from the, I'm just going to stick it in the drip coffee maker, the, right. you know, and, and drink whatever comes out of it to, you know, grinding my own. I bought a burr grinder recently and I Congratulations do. Congratulations on the step. All right. It's the best thing I've ever done. That's okay. That's maybe a little overstated, but as far as coffee goes, 
mm-hmm. the burr grinder is the best thing I've ever purchased. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now I drink mostly French press or, like, Chemex, pour over, right. whatever. I, I want to put a pin in the coffee stuff and come back to that in a minute. Because okay. I, I actually want to talk a little bit about plant breeding first. Perfect. Um, and your experience in that. So, you said you worked corn sorghum, yep. you know, corn and, sor- corn and sorghum through my career, whether it was corporate or the academic side. Um, so, academic side, my focus was all on corn with an occasional, since one of my co-chairs was a sorghum breeder, an occasional stint in there. And we had one project. It was a really cool project. Looking at aflatoxin accumulations in corn and sorghum, okay. and um, that that was led by me. That was really good the first year, completely disastrous the <laughs> second year, and then the third year we didn't have enough space or funding for it, so we got a omitted. Uh, and then I get an email last year that says, "Hey, yeah, we've analyzed this data because we." did a third year 10 years apart uh-huh. from the first and second year. And I'm like, Oh goodness gracious. Wow. And so thinking of the statistics, that go, exactly. <laughs> that go with that. I mean, I was reading that going, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh. Oh, okay. Yeah. How do I write this review? And then luckily one of who was one of my, one of my committee members wrote in and said, finally read his response and was like, Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto. Um, so um, it was. That's it was fascinating. Yeah. So there's, you know, what's what's really interesting to me about plant breeding, and I, I am not a plant breeder. I've taken some courses. I've studied it a little. Okay. Um, I don't know if you know Dr. Shu here at Texas Tech. I took his plant breeding class and. So I, I met Dr. Shu when he was a postdoc for Henry Wynn. Oh, wow. In 1998 or so. Yeah. And so, yeah. So depending on when you took his class um, outside of the last two years, there's a possibility that I was actually there for one of them. Okay. So um, that was, uh, it would have been, oh gosh. 2010, 2011, sometime in okay. there. So I think I think I started coming in and helping him with one of the industry perspective classes in twelve. Okay, is when I started coming in. Okay. And it was one day one day a semester to come in and talk about my breeding program and what I was actually doing. That's interesting. We just missed missed each other. I think yeah. I took it. Not, you know, it's been a minute, but I think I took <laughs> it like fall of 2011, probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, but there's there's so much. I don't know that I want to say, okay, I, I will say misinformation out there about yes. what breeding is. Yes. And, and you people hear plant breeding and they automatically think gene insertions, transgenics, GMOs. Correct. When the vast majority of plant breeding throughout human history has completely not been that. You Correct. Know? And, and, and you said it right there. Through human history, each of us are a proge- progeny of a breeding experiment. Right. Yeah, every single one of us is yeah. just that. And so th- through experiments, through experimentation, through documentation, thank you, Gregor Mendel, uh, <laughs> for, for, for his observations and, yeah. and what we were able to go through um, and move forward. But yeah, they think breeding is a bad thing. A lot of people really do. And, and it's hard to express that over compared to gene insertion, yeah. which has its place. Mm-hmm. Um and is very useful in some aspects. Could it be misused? Absolutely. Sure, Absolutely. Sure. Just like any other technology out there, right? Yeah. We can use it for what it's for the positive intended purpose, or we can turn around and use it for a negative purpose accidentally or purposefully. Yeah. And so sometimes we don't understand the consequences of what we do immediately when we do them. So, well, and that's, you know, that's interesting to think about too, because if you, if you look at the, the scope of, 
So uh, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this. People think science happens fast mm-hmm. because in movies. So, okay, here's a great example. Um, this with all this um, uh, coronavirus stuff, the movie pandemic, not pandemic, um, contagion, contagion. Yep. where it's like in the course of an hour and a half movie, uh, you know, she finds a, a gene in a monkey and like makes a, makes a, a, a vaccine, vaccine and uh, injects herself and all this stuff. When, when the pace of science is not that. Right. And so when we talk about, you know, the 30, 40 years we have um, experience with with our genetically modified organisms, with Mm -hmm. our transgenics and gene insertions, that's not that long. No, it's not. When you consider that when we think back to when we with Watson and Crick and and identifying the double helix. Yeah. And then you move forward to, hey, we're able to identify down to the nucleotide. Then you move forward to this. We're looking at a very short time period, but it's taken a long time to understand exactly what's happening. And we still don't know everything of why everything happens the way it does. Yeah. Which is why we keep doing the science. That's right. So, you know, and and I, you know, and and it's, it's an interesting spot for me because I, in general, am pretty pro um, ag tech, right? I'm pro GMO in general. Right. But then when people ask, like, can you say for certain that it's hundred percent safe? I'm like, no. No. I, I don't know. Data has shown that it's fairly safe, but I don't know because we don't have the the scope we, of data yet. We, we don't. And there's a lot of things out there that we don't know what happens when. So my breeding career at Texas A&M was all working in pre-harvest aflatoxin accumulation. So trying to limit how much aflatoxins the fungus um, Aspergillus flavus produces, Right. So there's a there is a, an interaction between genotype of corn and genotype of of Aspergillus flavus mm-hmm. on how much actually gets produced. Interesting. All right. So you end up with some type of G by E there when you when you take out the environment and you just look at corn and and flavus. Yeah. And so you sit back and go, crap. Well, what happens when this gets into the into the food chain? Well, it causes liver cancer. Right. It's bad. Yeah. We know that. But when does it enter in? What can be a trigger for it? There's always a level of risk that we have to have at something with everything. But what is that level of risk? And then do we err on the side of not being able to potentially produce enough food hmm. for the people out there? It's interesting. It is. That, that's an interesting both science question and philosophical question. That it right? is. Yeah. And so the, the, the other side of it is that we've, we've in the U.S., used it mainly in large-scale agronomic crops to ease production. Right. A lot of different reasons for that, whether it's lack of help on the farm side, um, ease of produ- producing a crop um, across the board. But what we don't think about are some of the quality products that GMOs have come into. Hmm. So eggplant is one. So Brinjal in in India, right? There's a virus that affects it. Well, they created a GMO that was resistant to the virus. Well, they started having the arguments of what is it completely safe? Well, it was either, is it completely safe and we eat? Is it not completely safe and we don't eat or what? And so once the genetics got out, I mean, like theft, it was rampant yeah that the the, the the people revolted and planted it the farmers planted it because it was either we have the genetics and we plant it and we have a crop or we don't have that genetics 
and we don't plant it, we don't have a crop. Yeah. So that was a, it was a really interesting back to the philo- philosophy of what happens with this and and where do we draw a line where we as <clears throat> we as um, food secure country. Yes. Where do we draw the line and say, you can't have this right. for a place that has a lot less security when it comes to food? Yeah. And so you can apply the same philosophy then to the golden rice principle yeah, right. in Southeast Asia. Yeah. You know, where vitamin A deficiency is a, mm-hmm. a real thing. Right. Yes. And, and it's, and, and you bring up a really interesting point and, you know, I, we probably won't dwell on this too much. I think that we could spend a long time talking <laughs> yeah. about this but, and maybe we will sometime actually, <clears throat> but you bring up a good point that it's easy for us, I think, as like you say, food, um, food secure, developed country mm-hmm. to say, I choose not to eat this, right? I yeah. choose not to use it. I, I, for whatever reason, but if your options are use it or starve or use it or you don't make any money, right? which is kind of a big deal. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, you know, the, you're, you're, you're choice matrix there kind of gets pretty simplified in, in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing to think about. And, and you know, that that's going to continue, I'm sure to be a debate for forever, forever, because everybody has their, <clears throat> their panacea of what food should be. Yeah. And there's a lot of overlap between them, but everybody has their own little niche of it. And so it's, it's a, it's a very, very interesting thing. Well, and someone, someone who is kind of a hero of mine that in my mind shouldn't be a polarizing figure, but in some cases is, is a Norman Borlaug, Dr. Well, Dr. Borlaug, right? He, uh, if you haven't, I'm sure you've read it, but, uh, if you're out there listening, there's a, a really great book called the man who fed the world yep. about Norman Borlaug. It's fascinating about his life. And he, through conventional breeding practices, bred, um, uh, I guess he did rice and wheat, I believe. He started out rice and then went into wheat and ended up at Simmet breeding okay. wheat. And he was the one that introduced the the dwarfing genes. Yeah. Right. So traditional wheat is six plus foot tall. Yeah. And traditionally would fall down. So he's able to shorten the plant through, through identification of dwarfing genes, increase the yield, and thus be able to feed a lot more people. So I believe he was credited with saving a billion lives. Something like that. Um, and, and for that was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, his, his research institutes at Texas A&M now, the Borlaug yes. Institute. Yep. But, but, you know, and for me in ag- agriculture, I'm like, this guy is clear for me, clearly a hero. But then you start to talk to some people and they're like, well, he brought about this whole like breeding revolution that has mm-hmm. led us to where we are now. So it's just, it's an interesting, just, uh, I don't know, moral and discussion. It, it, it is. It, it really is. And so we think about what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? Um, but at the same time, we were talking about a, a completely different subject with another person one time. And their response was, you always default towards life. Yeah. And that one just, that one has just stung me. And it's like, well, okay. So if we can do something that's going to help somebody live and and hopefully live better, yeah, I'm going to do what I can to help that person live and live better. If I believe something different, but I know that this technology is going to do it, I'm going to do that yeah, because that's what that person needs. Um, and huh. so yeah. that's really profound. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and, and in today's climate, that's very profound. It, it is. And, and this was, it was, like I said, it was a completely different subject matter that I don't even want to try to get into sure, here. No. Um, 
and it was default towards life. But then I started realizing when you apply that statement to everything that's out there, how does your view change on things? Yeah, a lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. A lot. Well, that's going to keep me up. But that, that's been in a good way. That's, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, we'll we'll switch gears uh, a okay. little bit. Um, that, that was just a really fascinating conversation. Yeah. But I do want to talk about coffee. Um, and maybe we'll bring a little bit of that in here. So, how did you get into the coffee industry? Oh, so coffee. Um, coffee from breeding from breeding corn and sorghum and then later sorghum for for um, energy and for silage it was the end of my breeding career to coffee we had a coffee service at the office and the company I was working for and it was terrible <laughs> it was hideous coffee and we couldn't do anything to make it good um, may have been the brewer it, I think it was all the coffee because I made it several different ways yeah and my travels throughout the world I had phenomenal coffee to come back and just drink Ugh. Right. And so I was traveling through and I'd had local coffees through a couple of coffee roasters here. And but I was traveling down through central Texas and I spent the night at Temple and said, OK, got up in the morning, said coffee shop, closest local non I'm going to call it what I call it. Green mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, like I, that. I love them. I love what they've done for the industry. There's things I don't like about them, but what they've done and what Howard Schultz vision was yeah. um, 35 years ago yeah. is amazing for the industry and what doors they've opened up. It's just phenomenal. I'd still rather not drink it. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> no, um, that's, that's a good point. But but I was looking for something local. And so from where I was at, the closest one was I had to drive down to Belton. Okay. And so I walked in there and first time I'd really seen a wall of coffees and I was like, okay, what do you guys have on trip? They said, well, this is an Ethiopian RR. I was like, okay, let me try it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So I bought a bag of it and I drank through it, um, through Chemex at that point. Yeah. And it's still my go-to drink in the morning. Yeah. And, um, and so then I thought, well, you know what? I bet I can do this. So I started researching coffee roasting a little bit and bought a hot top home coffee roaster okay and did my first one outside i'd read some more people did it inside and wives got mad at them upset smokes and so like forth. crazy right? smokes like crazy and i did my first one outside and i said oh yeah this would not end well if i had done this inside <laughs> and and so it, it just started off every now and then i love facebook at times and one of them is that it reminds you of things you've posted several years ago yeah and so a couple of months ago it was my very first roast i took a picture of it and posted it and looked at it and went wow that looks like it could be in a grinder at some major chain coffee shop yeah uh ultra dark roast um i didn't even try it it was so bad um <laughs> by the end of it it smelled terrible and so it just turned into another science project for me. Sure. And then I started handing some out to friends and family. And after I started getting some that are really good and then it started being more And that hot top had a grand, grand, grand um, capacity of like 220 grams. Wow. Yeah. So that, that, that <laughs> wow. was, that was 220 grams going in. So you average, um, 12 to 15% moisture. Yeah. So you think yeah. about what you're going to have coming out, you're 180 grams or so of coffee wow. on the back end of it. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you just kind of go, Hey, I've got a good job and I can afford another car payment. And so let's go buy a small commercial one. Okay. And so, cause I was to the point where I was roasting for me and my friends, um, and sending some to family 
when I started roasting, it might be three hours a night on that thing at about 30 minutes, 27 minutes a roast yeah. from the time. It's a lot of work. Short of, short of taking out the safety mechanisms of it and, yeah. and modifying it. And <laughs> Which like, we all yeah. think about those things. We do. But then then when we see the commercials about she sheds being burning yeah. and so forth, you go, no, I, I don't. I like my I like my little man cave back here. Yeah. You don't want to burn down. <laughs> sure. <she shed>. So, <laughs> And and um, and so we bought a small commercial roaster, and it just started snowballing. And we said, "Hey, let's try to sell some." We found a market that wasn't full yet, <clears throat> and ended up out the Wolford Farmers Market. Cool. I think at that time we were vendor number seven out there and tents. And wow, yeah. I think I just saw a post saying that y'all have like ninety vendors or something total, including all the ones inside. Last week, I think there was sixty three that were there in person. Wow. Yeah. So 63 vendors in person. Then the market also has an indoor market where if you can't be there, you have a product that um, that is usable there. So one of my friends, he has um, sources macadamia nuts. Okay. And so he has them sitting in there for sale. Huh. And so they'll cool. they sell them for them. They take a percentage and they go around. Yeah. Cool. And so, um, and, but yeah, we're, we've gotten so big out there, um, in the last two years and really this last year, yeah. the last six months, we've really grown a lot. Um, and so able to get out there and put some coffee out there and doing everything at the house at that point. Um, so sure. operating, we decided that it was best to operate under cottage laws, labeled everything such. And after everything started selling, I was like, man, live. Well, this is going a lot. And so I called my roasting manufacturer and said, hey, can you, what, what's the next step? What's the next logical? And they said, suggested a roaster. So we got it on order and took a while. We said, hey, the next logical step is do we go com- really go commercial? And so then we said, sure. So we had, I had my side gig that was going along while I was still in my corporate job and wow. working in a company. So it was back to working full time. And essentially working back on my dissertation yep. again. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, so having two science projects going on at the same time wasn't, it was a lot of fun. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, but so it's just, um, it really snowballed in that regard. And then being in the right place at the right time and getting to see people and be in front of people. That was the hardest thing at the beginning of it for me was how do I get in front of people? Yeah. Um, how do I go meet business owners? How do I find the general managers? How do I find these people? Sure. And, so I was able to be at the right place at the right time, meet critical people that are still in my lives um, that that just are there whenever I say, hey, I know I've got this problem and bounce something off of them. And they go, oh, yeah, well, if you thought about it this way, it's like, ah, yeah. So I get a lot of aha moments from people and whether or not I should do something or not and how to go about doing it and how different ways to look at it. That's awesome. Well, and, and that's, you know, very much the life of a small business owner. I've. Yeah. I've owned various small businesses over the years. I do some woodworking now and yeah. my family is a peach orchard, which is, uh, I think at the time this comes out, we'll have been selling for a little bit already. Okay. Good. Um, uh, hopefully, you know, fingers yeah. crossed every, you know, we're so, uh, so much a, uh, so much dependent on the weather mm-hmm. that good year can turn bad real quick with a, with a hail storm or something, it, but it can, but so far everything looks really good. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the life of a, a small business owner, especially in this like local food industry, food mm-hmm. and drink industry, where it's like, you've got to make friends and you've yeah. got to rel- be able to rely on your friends. You do. And you have to have a very strong network that you're able to access. Um, and doing so, I've been able to generate a network now that's almost nationwide. That's cool. Yeah. And so it's really cool. 
that's and that's that's such an interesting story just uh, as a way to to get into it start and, and that's so funny that so many great businesses i think start off with like drinking a cup of coffee or doing something and be like i could do this better yeah um that's kind of how i got into woodworking actually i, I did it in high school a little okay. bit but a few years ago um, when i was with extension i was going to uh speak at a conference or something like that and I was like, you know what would be cool? I'm a plant guy. I really want like a wooden tie clip. I had seen one on okay. Facebook or something. So I ordered some on, on uh, Seattle-based large online shopping yep. um, chain. And uh, <laughs> uh, they came in and they, I was like, I paid 30 bucks for this? Are you yep. kidding me? I can do this better. I have some. So I played around and I made a couple of tie bars. And uh, then it's like, you know, you get your first taste and it's like, Oh, but I could do this too. Yeah. And then my my parents bought me a lathe and I built, made some cutting boards and I was like, and then it's just, you know, off to the races from there. I, uh, and it's, it's fun, right? Yeah. You get into that it kind is. of stuff. Yeah. And it, it is, it's a lot of fun whenever you start doing it. And then you get down to going, oh man, what am I going to call this thing? <laughs> oh yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and so we ended up with a name, Tieta Spanish Roasters. Um, and we went through several different iterations, and some people asked, how did we end up with Tietas Planus Roasters? And I said, you know, we wanted to tie it back to where we're at. Yeah. I didn't want to say, hey, we're the same name but coffee roasters as a adult beverage company down the road. Yeah, sure. Okay. Sure. I didn't want to call it that. Um, my wife nixed, absolutely nixed immediately when I said, hey, let's call it the Cotton Country Coffee Roasters. <laughs> She didn't like that, huh? She didn't like that. I was huh. like, man, we could be we could be the um, the Cotton Country Coffee Roaster, so it'd be um, the CQ Bar. <laughs> and she was like, no, absolutely not. And so we started thinking. We went, okay, what are we? Where are we at? We're in the flatlands. Okay, flatlands, flatlands. Open up Yellow Pages, and how many flatlands? There's a bunch. There's a bunch. And so we said, all right. So we le- we leaned on some of our network and said, hey, help us translate this. And they came back with several, and we went around and around on a few of them, and. We had another friend ask us, he said, are you sure you want to do this, Carrie? I said, why? He goes, that is a very ethnic name. Mm. I said, okay, bad. He goes, well, it could be. And I said, but? He goes, it works. Yeah. I said, okay. And so in two and a half years, I've had two people comment on it. I've had a lot of people ask about it. Yeah. Um, and, and knowing that and looking at going to Tietas Polish Roasters and I thought about it goes, okay, where does the coffee come from? Coffee comes from Highlands. Okay. Um, a little bit higher than what we are here at a thousand, <laughs> yeah. thousand meters. I mean, grow quality coffee here if we're in the tropics. Yeah. Um, but, um, but then I thought about the tagline, where does it come from? Well, it comes from even higher. So it's coming from the highlands to the flatlands. That way we put the translation right in there for everybody. I like it. And, and so a lot of people look at it and what does that mean? It's like, well, it's flatlands. Like, and then they read the tagline about the, about that time. Like, <laughs> and so um, that's really cool. Yeah, so so it was really fun playing with that, and then we've been through a different iteration of of the logo. The first one was really really short, but very long, and so yeah. it was really cool. It was mountains that mountains that trailed into a flat land and had our name across it, and, and incorporated some of the effects of it. But the problem was to make it really readable, we had to make it. Two backs worth of me wide. Sure. Right. Because it was so long. And so we accessed one of the marketing groups here, Flint Avenue Marketing, said, hey, we need some help. And they they talked with us for a while. And Amy Wood, she's just an amazing person. She 
talked with us for a while. We got on with a project manager and they talked with us for a while and they came back with about three or four different iterations. It was and they're going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Now, now we have another couple of different ones that we're using and we're getting ready to to use that this one on the bags for more of a corporate logo. And then cool. the coffee is going to be, have a little bit different logo. And okay. so as, as it's going and as our wholesale business is expanding, we're offering a few different products, trying to be more rounded for for our customers, gotcha. different things we can offer, different teas, different objects. And so, yeah. That's really cool. And I, I like, I'm looking at the this bag and I just like very much that just says ingredients coffee. That's right. Like that makes me happy. So so the fun th- <laughs> the fun thing is is I have to have an ingredient statement on it. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, what's in there? It's like coffee. There's coffee in it. That's all there it's a bag is. Of coffee. That's all there is. And so yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So um I, I wanna we've got, you know, again, it doesn't really yeah. matter how long we go. I don't care. <laughs> um, uh, what I found is that our listeners will keep listening. Yeah. You know, so it's okay. fine. Um so I want to talk a little bit about the future of the coffee industry. Okay. Because, you know, if you spend any time on social media, you have probably seen an article pop up that says the coffee industry has X number of years left because the – and I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. As a, a scientist, as someone who has dealt with the genetics of plants, wh- what's the future of this industry with climate change and everything else coming in? So, without a lot of change, without a lot of change on, on, the, on the consumer end – on the producer end, um, climate change is happening. Yeah. I mean, we can mitigate it as much as we can, um, but we're not going to go back to what we were. Right. All right. We're stuck. Even if we stopped change from happening right now, we're stuck where we're at. And so, again, back to my wife, when she moved down to College Station, she didn't perform well down there. I mean, her body in that humid environment did not like it. Right. We see the same thing with corn and sorghum. Some gen- genotypes perform really well in humid environments. Some perform really well in more arid environments. And so then the same thing is going to ha- happens with coffee. You take a genetic base from, say, from Ethiopia or from Kenya, so SL28, and you take it from there and you put it in to Colombia or to Costa Rica. You're going to have a product that may or may not perform well um, and um, definitely doesn't taste, produce the same flavor of coffee as what it had in different places. Right. And so one of the biggest things that's happened with coffee through with climate change is rust. Okay. Aroya. Interesting. Okay. And so there's places that have rust now that have never had rust. And those places don't have the genetics in place. So again, back to the genotype by environmental interaction, we can take coffees from places that have rust and have genetic resistance, but you may not have a very flavorful cup. So that's where the center came in and Center for Coffee Excellence Improvement came in and they started breeding coffee and they've started their first trials this year of coffee that they did. And these are huge trials that they have um, in different countries and multiple different locations in countries. And so the fun thing with a crop like coffee is you have two things that you have to look at. You have a definite quantitative um, response, right? Yield. Yeah. How many pounds of beans do we get per plant? But then we have an enormous qualitative response that we have to look at. And that's what is it like? What is the presence in the cup? Yeah. And so these are all efforts that have come about through breeding 
efforts that have happened in the past 10 years or so because it takes a while yeah um, as we were talking earlier it takes a while for science to happen we can we can start a generation and Norman Borlaug did it and started the what he called the shuttle breeding back and forth two two to three generations in a year yeah the most we were able to crank out was four yeah and that was using greenhouse early harvest um, really fast movement back to a tropical environment, then really fast movement back to Lubbock. So it was basically plant in Lubbock um, and then harvest early, uh-huh. plant in the greenhouse, harvest early, plant in the greenhouse, send to tropical environment, get back and hopefully plant by mid-June. Wow. Yeah. That's I mean, intense. This is cranking out, cranking out some generations. Yeah. Here. And there are different, um, different groups that figured out different ways to do it and even crank out faster by light manipulation. Sure. Um, so 90 days, less than 90 day cycles complete total. That's pretty amazing. In the greenhouse. Right? Yeah. It is massive intensive management though. Um, and so that the usage back to coffee, the usage of science to improve coffee for those coffee farmers. What what's happening is the rust is hitting in areas that it hadn't been killing the plants. Coffee farmers are taking that out and saying, Hey, we're going to plant something different because there's nothing for us right now. And so that's where the center came in and is trying to improve coffee back across the world. One yield, to improving the quality. Yeah. And so then, then once we're improving the quality to a certain level, then it works on the smaller level back to the importers, the overall coffee industry demanding, Hey, let's take it up a step. Let's improve your fertility. Let's improve your irrigation. Sure. Let's improve overall and raise the bar even higher. And so will there be an eventual drop in coffee production? Possibly. Yeah. Um, over time, will it completely go away? No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, not at all. Yeah. I guess a lot, you know, ultimately comes down to then, then, then you get into the economics of it, the pricing mm-hmm. and everything else. Yeah. And that's, you know, a whole other conversation, <laughs> yes. but, but no, that's really interesting. And, you know, as a coffee drinker, that's uh, encouraging to me in, in a couple of ways. And as a human on the planet, it's also encouraging to me because I think sometimes we fall into this, especially talking about climate change and all the garbage that's going on right now. We fall into this super negative cycle of everything's terrible. The the mm-hmm. world's going to end tomorrow. But the fact of the matter is there's people in all of these industries on the front lines working towards a better world. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and that's right. And, and then we'll go back to GMOs on this. So everybody, I get a lot of questions, whether it's GMO free. There are, as far as I know, there are not any GMOs out there of coffee right. at all. There have all been, there's breeding efforts, but it's all Mendelian genetics and non-insertion. But I think about it and go, wait a second, if we knew the gene that causes the, that ensues the resistance to the rust, would it be worth to insert that in? Yeah. And there's different technologies out there for gene insertion that are very, very accurate. Yeah. And, and so would it be worth and would could that make a faster turnaround for that to improve for the farmers back to what you suggested? We're working to improve something for somebody. Yeah. And, and like you said earlier, and I think that's just a great takeaway from this whole discussion, the whole, um, maybe, maybe the, I think every scientist should have a t-shirt that says default towards life. Yeah. You know, maybe every person. I, I don't think know. so. That would, it would be an interesting thing of hashtag default towards life. Yeah. I like that a and lot so. because, because again, that is our, that is our, goal, right? We, mm-hmm. as, as scientists, we're supposed to be building a better tomorrow, right? That's right. And, and if, if 
not just human life, but life in general, in and of itself for its intrinsic value, not because of its utility, right. is our goal. We how much could we do, right? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and and of course it's it's more complicated than that, but maybe it shouldn't be. Yeah. And and I think that's what we do is uh, at times we overcomplicate it and say, well, that works here but not here. Or that works there but not over here. Yeah. And but what happens if we do just apply it across the board, carte blanche, just do it yeah. and see what happens. Well, so as we wrap up, I, I asked this question and maybe maybe we've just kind of answered it. Uh, <laughs> but um, I always ask my guests just for a piece of advice. Right. And that can be in picking a good cup of coffee. It's really whatever you want. Yeah. Could, it, could it be picking a good cup of coffee or just following your passions in life? What, what would your piece of advice for our listeners be? Oh, shoot. I got asked this a long time ago. Yeah when I got it was interviewed at Ellison's greenhouses in Brenham okay. is what would you tell basically the same thing? What would you tell a graduating senior? And that was at that point it was, Hey, don't let life pass you by cause you can't catch up. And in, really you can't. And technology was changing at that point. So 2000 ish. And you think okay, about yeah. Y2K, you think about how fast computer technology changes at that point. We're still changing um, different coding languages are coming out and so forth. And so it's really hard to catch up. Yeah. But even if you let something pass you by, you may not need to catch up. I mean, it's amazing what 24, 20 some odd years difference changes my opinion on things. <laughs> right. um, but you may not need to catch up, but embrace what you have. Yeah. It is, is embrace what you have, change what you can, and enjoy the rest. I love it. I mean, it, it really is because you may miss something and thinking back to 20 years ago, me thinking that and suggesting that hey, you've got to catch up to everybody, but that may not be where you need to be. Yeah. But embrace what you have and enjoy it. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that a lot. Um, so where can we find you? Plug, plug your stuff. All right. Social media, so whatever. Yeah. So Tieta Spanish Roasters, um, T I E R R A S P L A N A S okay. roasters, um, dot com or on Facebook, Tieta Sponus Roasters, Instagram, Tieta Sponus Roasters. Don't laugh at Twitter <laughs> because it has bad, it, it not bad, but it has a, an effect now, especially from the last three months. But it, I just put it in and didn't think about it, but it's TP Roasters. Okay. There yeah. you go. So, That's hilarious. So <laughs> You told me not to laugh. I can't help it. It, it, it dawned on me. I did something mid-March. I looked at it and went, oh, no. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> so, That's funny. Oh, um, so, but then to make it easy, knowing that our name is long, Tietas Ponus Roasters, um, uh, the easiest way to find us on online is tprcoffee.com. Okay. Um, you can get um, pick up a cup at um, or a bag at J&B Coffee House. Um, here in Lubbock, cool. um, online we ship across the nation. Um, haven't tried any world shipments yet. I'm waiting for my parents to get back to their house in Ecuador okay. and want to try a shipment there and just to see what happens. Sure. See if it makes it or not. I doubt it does. I bet it goes to somebody in customs and they get to enjoy a phenomenal cup. Yeah, there you go. Um, but <laughs> hey, somebody gets to enjoy it and they're going to embrace what they have. Yeah, yeah, there you <laughs> so, go. Um, but yeah, those social things, uh, if you're here in Lubbock, come see us out at the Wolford Farmer's Market every Saturday from 10 till 2. We have samples of a couple different coffees every week. We set up for semi-full service coffee shop out there. Okay. Um, hot and cold drinks. Um, and as you mentioned, it's just a really big market that has just grown over the last two months. And a really cool atmosphere. It is. It is a really cool atmosphere. The base of the market, we're all in, in little barns. Yeah. Um, and we operate out of that with tents. Um, the 
the new vendors coming in all end up in tents out there, um, just as we did two years ago. Yeah. Um, being at the end of the line, and um, and you get to see a lot of different people and a lot of different locally produced products, uh, a lot of different uh, produce vendors that are out there. Saw that we're going to have one of the vendors going to have a bunch of cherries coming in. Oh, cool. A um, bunch of peaches and something else that they're going to have, like nectarines, not nectarines. Um, Ah, uh, yeah. One of them, one of the one of them that I don't like. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of fruits that I don't like, but there's a couple of them. Yeah. Um, figs is one now. Okay. No, I just can't okay. do figs. Interesting. Um, and but there's a lot of different products out there, and a lot of different. A lot of different stories once you get to know the vendors that are out there, why they're there. Very cool. Um, that, and that's the cool thing is getting to know the vendors and why they're there, why they're doing what they're doing and what's driving them to do what they're doing. Yeah. And that's, that's great. So definitely uh, uh, everyone just go support your local businesses, yeah. your local producers, your uh, everyone from uh, coffee roasters to bread makers and everyone in between. Mm-hmm. I, you know, yeah. um, you know, if this, this whole thing has, uh, this whole shutdown, lockdown thing has taught us anything is that we need to make sure that we're building up our local industries yep. and uh, uh, regionalizing and localizing as we can. That we do. And so the, one of the cool things, I'm going to plug the market out there and what the the owner's vision through this through this last two month, two and a half months has been is they saw a need. They yeah. saw a need for food when store shelves started um, started being empty. They saw a need and they saw their ability to buy food through different channels that a regular consumer might not be able to. And so they started having a community table that was, they were sourcing in food in large quantities, mm-hmm. so 25, 50 pound bags of flour, rice, what have you, yeah. in large quantities that typical homeowner is not going to get. And then they were rebagging it. And that okay. was, and they, they made that available. You needed you needed flour. Here's your flour. Baking powder went off the store shelves. Yeah. Here's the baking powder. And it was free. There was donation thing there if you wanted to put money in. If you had product, you're welcome to get with them and add your product to the community. That's really table. cool. And they've continued to do this. And it's just gotten bigger and bigger. And it's really cool watching the transactions happen of people coming in. And people taking. Yeah. It's, a, it's a give and a take. They're providing some. Some of the community that has uh, had excess of things through that time and realized, hey, I'm not going to use these five, 10-pound bags of flour that I bought. Um, yeah. They're bringing some out there to share with everybody else. That's really cool. Yeah. And so in the first few weeks of that, the that community table was being vacated within... 45 minutes of the market open. Yeah. And, and they were limiting on how much. So baking sure. powder, you get a little, a little Ziploc pouch of it yeah. and say they had 80 of them and they were gone. So <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's, and that's, you know, just taking care of the community yeah. and giving back to the community that, that supports the market. And, and that's, you know, definitely go visit them and, yeah. and all of that. Well, man, Carrie, I, I really enjoyed this yeah, conversation. I really enjoyed it. I feel like we had a couple of loose ends there between breeding and coffee. So, yeah. but we can, we can follow up another time. Yeah, sometime, I think so. I think we should. You know, and it, again, it's hard to in in an hour or less. It's hard to cover <laughs> so much ground. But I, you know, I, I you got so much experience that I wanted to try to hit it a yeah, little bit. You know, we can hit it a little bit and hit a little bit more and hit a little bit more. So. Yeah, no, no, no. I agree. I think yep. I'd love to have you back on and maybe uh, deep dive into some of this a little yeah, bit more. But that sounds good. No, again, thanks for thanks for being on. Um, and uh, everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. All right, thank you. I'm going to keep this outro short and just say, in all things you do, socially, scientifically, financially, and everything in between, default towards life. If you can make someone's life better, and if you can use your skills to save a life or to improve the quality of life for someone, 
that's the thing you should be doing. Default towards life. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you, as always, to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for the support and the freedom to do this. Uh, Wish me luck on next Wednesday, the 29th, with my defense. Uh, Either I will be back next time on August 5th as Dr. Vikram Baliga, or you'll never hear from me again because I failed my defense and moved to the mountains to hunt squirrels for their pelts for a living. Y'all are the best. Thanks for listening again. And uh, assuming I am back in two weeks, we'll be back with our very first deep dive episode where I bring a guest back with my friend Hallie Casey from the One to Grow On podcast. Take it easy. We'll talk to you soon.